Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today, a break from all the news happening in our world as we focus on the garden. Did you have a great crop of tomatoes and other good crops this summer? Were you happy with the way your perennials and annuals bloomed from the time you planted just a few months ago? So now what? Don't worry, we have a gardening expert with us this hour to help you figure out what to do next. And we'll take your calls this hour. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us from the studios of Vermont Public Radio in Colchester is Charlie Nardozzi, a horticulturist and author and host of the Connecticut Garden Journal, which airs on WMPR Thursday afternoons at 3.04. Charlie, welcome back to the show. It's great to be here, Lucy. Something on my mind is the first frost. Uh, in Vermont, you're probably getting ready to plant some bulbs. In Connecticut, we're seeing 70s today and throughout the weekend. So uh, are we seeing a later frost? Well, actually, it's going to be up in the 70s in Vermont as well. Uh, the whole region has been experiencing this really dry, warm conditions all fall. So, uh, yeah, I think you know there has been a frost up in the hills of Vermont and maybe even down in the Litchfield Hills and places around Connecticut and the Berkshires, uh, but nothing serious, uh, especially if you're in kind of the lower areas along the coast. So uh, summer continues. <laughs> what else can I say? Uh, but it is time to plant garlic and bulbs, and uh, you, you can wait a little bit longer because it's been so hot and dry. But I wouldn't wait too long. You know, life gets busy. You forget, I'll do it next weekend. And before you know it, it's December, January, and you haven't planted your bulbs. Uh, NBC Connecticut meteorologist Ryan Hanrahan uh, posted something recently that the average first frost in Connecticut is two weeks later uh, when you look at over the last 50 years. Is this something that uh, Vermont has seen as well? Oh, yeah, that's definitely a whole trend throughout the Northeast is that, and I've been seeing that for a number of years, and it's the reason why I plant a lot of my garden so it matures in the fall because we have these longer extended falls now that can be beautiful, like this year, where you can really get crops to go into November, December, especially if you do a little crop protection, you know, putting some covers over them during a chilly night, get them through a frost or two, and then it warms right back up again. Uh, So, yeah, fall is actually turning into a great time of year to garden. Now, you mentioned that uh, you can start planting bulbs, even though we're having this great summer weather. Uh, Does it matter what type of bulb that you're putting in the ground right now? Well, you're doing the spring flowering bulbs, so the tulips, the hyacinths, the the crocuses, the daffodils, all of those types that will be blooming uh, April and May next year. And uh, again, you can plant them now. Um, You can wait if it's too warm. You want to go to the beach (laughs) this weekend. You can wait another week or two to to do that. But those are the bulbs in particular you want to get in the ground in the fall because they need that cool dormancy period that we'll have in the winter before they'll start growing next spring. And now bulbs, uh, depending on the bulb, uh, they can be toxic uh, to those little critters. So I do like to plant a lot of daffodils around some other bulbs, hoping that maybe they won't notice my tulips uh, that may be next to them. Uh, Can you give us an idea of the best ways to be planting these bulbs, Charlie? 
Yeah, if you have uh, chipmunks, if you have squirrels and mice and voles and uh, even deer digging around in, in the garden a little bit, if you have those creatures that will go after your bulbs, after you, you've planted them, there's nothing worse than spending a whole day planting bulbs. You come out the next morning and they're all dug up and they're scattered all over the place. Uh, so if you can put in some uh, bulbs next to them, like you were mentioning, the daffodils that they're not so interested in, uh, daffodils, fritillaria, there's a number of other bulbs that have a, a taste to them that they don't really like. That's a nice way to kind of protect them. So you can almost make a ring around the, the precious tulips and the hyacinths or the crocuses and, and see if you can kind of defer them that way. Another thing you can do is get some crushed uh, seashells or oyster shells. So go down to the beach and gra- collect a bunch of shells, crush them up into a bag, into a pulp or a powder, and then sprinkle those in when you're planting the tulips and the crocuses uh, with the bulbs. When those little critters go tunneling down to eat the bulbs, they'll come across those sharp edges of those crushed shells and they won't like it and they'll go somewhere else. Uh, We also were talking about how it still appears to be summer with these temperatures. Um, What are some of the edibles that people are still harvesting in their gardens right now? Well, if you haven't had a frost, everything continues. Um, I've, been, I've been eating sweet peppers. I've had a bonanza of sweet peppers this year. I grow those Italian frying peppers, you know, like the, the Nardelli, the Jimmy Nardelli pepper, actually. Uh, comes from Connecticut. Uh, those are great peppers. And what's nice about this fall is that it's allowed a lot of these sweet peppers to mature to their uh, color that they get to when they're really sweet, like a red color, an orange color, a yellow color. Makes them even more nutritious and even more tasty. So definitely peppers are something that's continuing. Any of the greens, the leafy greens, um, broccoli, if you had a fall crop of broccoli, that's doing really well. And then the cool season crops, like the leeks, for example, or any of the root crops, the carrots and the beets and the radishes. I mean, it sounds like summer almost in the garden because things are really continuing to go along. I'm still getting some strawberries in my garden, <laughs> so oh, look at I that. can't complain. Yeah. yeah, and that's the fall berries, the raspberries and the fall blooming and bearing blackberries uh, have been a great crop this year. Do you have a gardening question? Charlie Nardozzi is with us on Where We Live Today, a horticulturist, author, and host of the Connecticut Garden Journal, which airs on WNPR Thursday afternoons. Now, usually when Charlie's on our show, a lot of the calls will come in on the later part of the show, and then we run out of time to get your question on. So I'm going to give the number again, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, at this time of year, uh, because everything is still blooming, it looks good, um, I'm always curious about when is the best time to be cutting back and uh, we're getting a tweet from Catherine. What is the best time and way to trim back a boisterous butterfly bush, Charlie? Ah, boisterous butterfly bushes. Yeah, they do really well in these warm conditions, and they do get big and large. Uh, But the time to really cut those back would be in the spring. They are one of the shrubs that blooms on what we call the new wood. So the the plant will overwinter, and anything that grows off of that wood, out of the ground or off of the wood next year at the end of those branches, that's where you'll get the butterfly flowers. So you don't really want to prune them this time of year unless they're really becoming invasive. They're in, in a walkway area or blocking a window or something like that. Then you can prune back the errant br- uh, branch that might be in the way. But in general, wait till the spring to prune those back, and that way you'll be able to structure, create a little structure around them and also get that many more flowers. This was the first year I planted a few different varieties of lavender, and they, they looked nice in the late spring, summer, and then I was surprised that they just bloomed excessively the last couple of weeks. Is that, uh, is that traditional with the lavender? 
Well, actually, it's not, you know, but a lot of uh, perennials I've seen have been doing that because of the warm weather we had and a little bit due to the dry weather, too, the stress that that creates. It'll send the message to the plant that I, I better bloom because who knows what will happen next. <laughs> I want to send out more seeds uh, so that I can propagate myself. So it is a little bit unusual that lavender is blooming a second time. I've had that happen in my garden. I even have a magnolia tree this year bloom three times, not only in the spring, but twice more in the summer. Um, again, because of the warm conditions, it just seemed to keep wanting to bloom. Now, uh, with that in mind, um, is it possible that a plant could be weaker come spring? Well, generally not, uh, because these blooms you often will get uh, successively in the summer and the fall tend not to be a full bloom. There may be a, a few stalks here and there, a few blossoms here and there, and it's nice to look at and get excited about, but it's generally not going to take a lot of the energy away from the plant, so I wouldn't be too worried about it. Something that uh, that I noticed as well with all of the lavender that looks so bushy right now, or the bees are happy, so it's a good thing for the pollinators to get uh, to get the last uh, food before the hard freeze comes. Yeah, it's always nice to you know keep those annuals going, the zinnias you might still have out there. Keep the perennials going, like the asters or the Montauk daisies. Anything that can keep flowering later into the year, because as long as it's sunny and warm, those bees are going to be flying around looking for some uh, pollen and for some nectar. So uh, if you can kind of keep them fed longer into the winter, that's more likely they're going to make it through the winter okay. Also, I've noticed uh, weeds have kind of taken over in one of my beds, and I'm wondering what happens with that over the winter. Can I just uh, cover them up and hope that the, the cold will kill them, or will they be back come spring if I don't get rid of them now? Yes, that sounds like the I'm tired of gardening gardener. <laughs> Can I just cover them up and forget about them and deal with it next year? <laughs> uh, unfortunately, Lucy, you're going to have to deal. It'd be better to deal with them this year. And that's one of the things um, we've been doing at our house is been weeding, uh, has been weeding. Uh, we've been going through the perennial flower gardens, the vegetable gardens, you know, all these different areas uh, and pulling out a lot of those perennial weeds, the dandelions, the burdocks, the plantain, the quack grasses, anything that's going to have root system that's going to come back really vigorously next spring because you know what will happen in March and April. The first thing that will start growing will be those perennial weeds, more so than your flowers. So if you could spend a little time in this nice, sunny, warm weather out there doing one last weeding, I know you're really sick of it, but one last weeding, it's going to really pay dividends next year. I have a defense. I have a two- and six-year-old at home, so cut me some slack, Charlie. <laughs> All right, I'll give you a pass on this one. But next year. <laughs> now, you mentioned garlic earlier. What's the best way to plant those? So garlic also will be planted this time of year with the spring flowering bulbs. And how I usually like to plant them is create a raised bed uh, because they like really well-drained soil. But really, the only way that garlic doesn't survive the winter is if it sits in really cool, wet soil too long in the, in the winter and ends up rotting. So make sure you have a raised bed. And then you take your garlic bulbs, and you want to get bar garlic bulbs from a local supplier. Uh, so you get bulb varieties that are adapted to our region. You don't want to get go to the grocery store and buy those garlic bulbs because they come from California, and those varieties are not adapted for Connecticut and the Northeast. Uh, so you get your garlic bulbs, get your varieties, soft neck, hard neck, whatever ones you want to use. You know, the soft neck are ones that we use to make braids, garlic braids, and the hard necks are the ones that create those curly cue scapes in the summer, which are really tasty to eat. Uh, then you, the night before you're going to plant, you break them apart into individual cloves and just put them in a bowl somewhere uh, off to the side. What you're trying to do is let the basal plate, which is the bottom, the flat bottom of those cloves, kind of callous over a little bit. And just overnight is all they really need to do that. That'll help with the rooting. 
And then the next day, you go out and you plant them about two inches deep, four to six inches apart in little rows on top of the bed, covered all with about a two to four inch thick layer of straw. Uh, maybe put some boards or something on top of that so it doesn't blow away. And voila, you're done. You'll have garlic next uh, July, probably. We're getting some calls now. And you can join the conversation with Charlie Nardozzi, our gardening expert, also host of the Connecticut Garden Journal here on WMPR Thursday afternoon. Uh, the number again, 860-275-7266. Linda's calling from Hartford. Linda, you're on the show. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, I have a neighbor who puts uh, tropicals out in the garden and they flourish in the summertime. And then he takes them indoors, puts them in his basement and lets them go dormant during the winter. And he's able to revive them uh, March, April and put them back out in the garden. And I was wondering, I have annuals such as um, annual salvia and and snapdragons and other things that I was wondering, uh, are any of those things that I could put in the um, basement and try and make them go dormant and revive them in the next in the next season. Good question, Linda. Yeah, so if they're annuals, like a, the annual salvia you were mentioning, uh, they tend not to make it through the winter. They're, they're annual for a reason in that they kind of uh, peter out as we go into the fall. But if you have perennials that you want to try to overwinter, like your friend who has all those tropicals, whether it be the, the canna lilies or uh, some of the hibiscus, tropical hibiscus plants like that, um, you can get those to overwinter, especially if they're a plant that has a bulb to them, like the cannas, like the dahlias, um, like the tuberous begonias. Those are a number of plants plants that have bulbs or that are, you can overwinter the bulb itself in the basement somewhere. And, and usually what you would do is take those bulbs, put them in a, a plastic, perforated plastic bag with some slightly moistened peat moss or sawdust and just leave them there all winter. And then in the spring, pot them back up again and put them back outside. Um, if you have plants in the ground, like a mandevilla vine, uh, you can try to overwinter that in the basement as well. Um, or if you have a sunny window, if it's a small enough perennial, you can put it out in a sunny window. Uh, make sure you get as much sun as possible, good air circulation. And sometimes those will make it through the winter. They may not look very vigorous come March or so, um, but with the longer days uh, and a little fertilizing, uh, they'll bounce back by May and June. Uh, Ray's calling from Madison. Ray, go ahead with your question. I have holes all over my yard, P-O-L-E-S with a V, and my yard looks like a golf course. My question is, is there a natural way to get rid of these critters without poisoning or trapping? Because I also have two small dogs. A uh, good question. I also have seen lots of voles around uh, my house, and I, I wonder where the owls are to grab these little guys. But uh, <laughs> this is a common uh, complaint from gardeners, uh, Charlie. Yes, it is. Voles and mice can be really prevalent this time of year. You know, they've had the whole season to do all their breeding, and now here we are in October, and there's a big population of them all over the place. Uh, so, yes, they not only could dig in the lawns, but uh, go after those bulbs we mentioned earlier in the show. So uh, a non-toxic way uh, to uh, get rid of them is to spray castor oil. Now, castor oil is that stuff you find in grocery stores, but you want to go to a garden center and get it. You don't want to get the deodorized version of castor oil. You want to get the one that's for gardens. And you spray that on the lawn area or around the plantings where you see the bulbs are very active. They hate the smell of it, and they'll start getting buried. So you'll spray, and then a day or so later, you see a lot more activity, and then eventually they take off and go to your neighbor's house, and you can commiserate with them later in the winter about the vole problem they had. <laughs> I like that. Send them over to the neighbor's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so look for castor oil in garden centers and spray that, and uh, that usually works pretty well. Uh, we have a question about tomatoes. Kenny from West Hartford. Kenny, go ahead. Hey, good morning. How are you? Doing well. What's um, your question? 
Yeah, I got a question. Tomatoes, uh, every year it seems that when we plant tomatoes, some years we have amazing bumper crops, and then other years we are uh, lackluster, to say the least. Um, is there any factors that we need to take into consideration when picking our particular type of uh, tomato to plant? And um, do, do you know of any particular varieties, um, heirlooms especially, that work best in uh, our New England soil, Connecticut? Thanks a lot. Yeah, so uh, tomatoes, they could be very uh, frustrating and very thrilling when they really work out well. As far as varieties go, I always like to try different varieties, and that seems to be the best thing to do. You know, every season's going to be a little different. Um, if you have problems with blights, for example, early blight or septoria leaf spot, where the leaves start turning yellow and dropping off mid-season, uh, you want to look for varieties that are resistant to that. So Iron Lady is one of those variant. Defiant is another one of those varieties. Uh, Mountain Magic is a, a cherry tomato, I believe. It's like that. And Matt's wild cherry is another one. So look for those varieties if you have troubles with the leaves dying dying back. If you're having trouble just invigorating the plants that are not very vigorous to start with, um, you can try some of the hybrids out there. I've grown big beef for a number of years, which is a burpee hybrid that's uh, been around for a long time now, and it consistently produces beautiful crops of fruit every year. If you want to do more with the heirlooms, you know, there's the traditional ones like the brandy wines. Uh, they do really well. Um, there's the Cherokee Purple is another good one. Green Zebra does really well. I think a lot of it is just kind of experimenting with varieties, seeing how they're, they're growing. Make sure you uh, amend the soil with compost and fertilize it. A lot of times people don't fertilize mid-season. You know, they'll, they'll do a little fertilizer when they plant in May, uh, but then they kind of forget about it. But maybe about six weeks after that, it'd be nice to side dress with a nice organic fertilizer to really give them a second boost in July, and hopefully that'll push them to, to have even more fruit for you for the rest of the season. Now, Charlie, you were talking about fertilizing tomatoes. Uh, what about the perennial beds? How should we be handling that as well as our lawns? Yeah, so you always want to fertilize, especially with perennials, based on a soil test. So, you know, University of Connecticut will do a soil test for you for a nominal fee, and it'll give you an idea of, of where you are with your pH, where you are with phosphorus, potassium, all calcium, all those different levels. And then based on that, you can add some fertilizer or add some soil amendment like lime or sulfur to make the soil sweeter or more sour. Uh, and this is a good time of year to do that with the lime and the sulfur because those are rock powders that take a while to break down. So if you do it now, by spring, hopefully it'll change the pH to where you want it. The same is true if you have phosphorus, uh, magnesium, potassium, calcium deficiencies. Uh, using organic fertilizers that use more of a rock powder-based thing, like green sand or rock phosphate, is nice to add now because it's very slow release. It slow, slowly breaks down. You want to avoid adding any high nitrogen fertilizers this time of year or something that's going to be taken up really quickly by the plant and invigorated because you want your plants to slowly be going into dormancy and not getting invigorated and start growing. This time of year, we're seeing more and more of our leaves uh, on the, the yard. Uh, remind us again, these are, this is a good thing and not to, to uh, rake them and take them away. Yes, leave the leaves. <laughs> if you have uh, some trees where you have a light layer of leaves, uh, oak leaves, maple leaves, whatever kind of trees you have, it's nice just to mulch them up. Just take your lawnmower and run over them a few times and shred them into little pieces. And it may look messy right after you do it, but within a week or so, it'll be gone because the little creatures will help break it down really quickly, and that will add a lot of nutrients to your soil, feed the trees, feed the lawn grass, and everybody will be happy. And in, in fact, there was a study at Michigan State that showed that if you leave, uh, I think it was maple leaves, on the lawn uh, through the winter, it reduced the amount of dandelions you had by 84% the next year. So there's a lot of benefits for keeping the leaves on the lawn. 
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Charlie Nardozzi is here with us, horticulturist, author, and host of the Connecticut Garden Journal, which airs on WNPR Thursday afternoons at 3.04. We're going to learn more about preparing your garden for spring. Up next, what should you plant and prune this time of year? And we're going to take your questions, 860-275-7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In the early fall, I like to plant perennials around my garden. Lots of nurseries have them on sale, so that helps. But pruning is something that I'm not good about. What about you? What questions do you have about how to tend your garden and backyard this time of year? 860-275-7266. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, Charlie Nardozzi is here to answer your questions and share some good tips. He's joining us from the studios of Vermont Public Radio in Colchester. He's a horticulturist and host of the Connecticut Garden Journal, which airs on WNPR. So tell us about uh, how to tend our trees, especially the ones that we may have planted earlier uh, in the season, Charlie. Well, if you've planted them earlier in the season, the roots are still kind of young, and they really haven't gotten established into the soil yet. And it's been really dry this fall. So it's really important to be watering them and watering them deeply. That means taking a five-gallon bucket of water and maybe every other day putting some water down on those trees and shrubs. It's really important because the roots, even though the leaves may be dropping and the plants going, are going dormant, the roots continue to grow until the soil gets down around 40 degrees. So that could be December in a lot of places. And it's really important for those roots to be able to reach out into the native soil, get established so that they can not only make it through the winter, but get a good fresh start in the spring. So watering is important. You can do it with buckets. You can do it with a device called the gator bags. Gator, just like the uh, the vehicle. <laughs> and it's a plastic bag that you put water inside of it, and then you wrap it around your tree, and it'll hold up to 20 gallons of water. So you can just leave it there, and that could be your watering for the week. It's just filling that bag once a week. Let it slowly drip out and ooze into the soil for your plant. Now, are there particular trees that we can plant now? Well, pretty much anything, you know, because, again, because the soils are so warm and the air temperature is so warm, you can get away pretty much with planting any deciduous tree right now for sure, and even some of the evergreens. Now, the evergreens are a little trickier because if it quickly shifts, and we know how our weather can quickly shift here, to get really cold, evergreens continue to transpire moisture throughout the winter. So if you plant them in October or November and the roots haven't had a chance to really get established very well, they could dry out and actually have some dieback in the winter. But deciduous trees, ones that lose their leaves, uh, really doesn't have that issue at all. So you can pretty much plant any of them right now. Uh, Harry from North Brantford has a question about uh, fig trees. Harry, you're on the show. Hi, how you doing? Uh, I love my fig trees, and I have quite a few of them. I know I'm in the wrong part of the country for them, but I can't get my figs to ripen properly. And they're the type with the brown bottom and the top is kind of green. And I have so many of them that just aren't ripening. Uh, Harry, are you growing them in the ground or are they in the containers? I have both. I have one set aside in the ground in a really sunny spot, and then I have uh, two or three in containers as well. Okay. Uh, the key I find with figs is to make sure they're really well watered, especially the container ones, because it, it can go a stretch maybe a, a week or so where maybe you don't water it so much, and you'll see those figs are either drop or they just don't ripen properly. So uh, with my containers, I'm literally watering them almost daily in August and September to get the figs to ripen because they need a lot of that moisture. So that might be one way to try to get those figs to ripen. 
it sounds like you're a fig aficionado, so you might want to try a few varieties, newer other varieties if you haven't grown them, like brown turkey and hardy Chicago. Those are two that are very adapted to a, a northern climate and seem to work pretty well. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Uh, Marcy's calling from Hamden. Uh, Marcy has a question about chestnut trees. Marcy, go ahead. Hi. Um, I have some. I have a couple of very mature chestnut trees. We planted them about twenty year twenty years ago, um, and they're very. I, they produce wonderfully. But now, uh, this year and last year, they've been invested with maggots uh, as they ripen. So um, I'm wondering if you have anything to suggest. Hmm. It's great you're getting the chestnuts to ripen because I'm assuming these are the, the American chestnut or a hybrid thereof of those. Yes. Uh, yeah, okay. And um, having maggots in a big tree might be a bit of a, a problem as far as trying to control for them because obviously it's a hard tree to, to do any kind of spraying. Um, so what I would suggest to do uh, maybe is to try to keep the tree as healthy as possible. And, and maybe uh, if you have a couple low-lying branches, try some sprays next summer to just kind of see if that makes a difference in them. And if it does, then you'll know, okay, well, maybe I'll make the investment and get someone to come in and to spray up into the higher regions where I have more chestnuts up there. Um, but you know, doing the sprays earlier in the season might, might be a way to kind of counteract having those maggots uh, get started inside the nuts. Okay, thank you very much. You're welcome. Now, we do see a lot of those lovely horse chestnut uh, trees around uh, in neighborhoods, but those are inedible chestnuts. That's correct, yeah. Those are just for ornamental purposes, and the, the chestnuts we were just talking about are really related to the American chestnut that used to populate the whole Appalachian all the way up into uh, Maine uh, with beautiful, huge trees with lots of uh, chestnuts, and of course they all died off uh, with the chestnut blight that happened about 100 years ago. Um, but there are now newer varieties that are coming out that are supposedly resistant to the bright, blight, and of course there's crosses between the American and the Chinese chestnut, which is resistant, um, that you can now get. So so you can have chestnuts roasting on an open fire mm-hmm. right from your own home. I feel like I need to have Marcy as my neighbor if she has the, the chestnuts without the maggots. But <laughs> we're glad to hear that uh, she's able to have uh, the healthy hybrids uh, growing uh, in her yard. Uh, now, earlier we talked about you could still be planting different types of trees. When we go to the store, what should we be looking for in terms of if the plant we're about to buy, the tree, um, is healthy? Yeah, so if you're going to buy a shrub or a tree this time of year, a lot of times they may have been sitting there in the yard all summer long. So it's good to do a little discriminating when you're looking at the shrub shrub or tree. Uh, If it's a shrub in one of those black plastic pots, you might just want to pop it out of the pot just to see what the root system looks like. If it has roots that are spinning around and all you see is this mass of roots, and especially if those roots are kind of brownish and don't look very healthy, that's not a good sign. It wasn't taken care of very well and and probably not a good one to buy. If you pull it out and you see that there's roots winding around, but you still can see a lot of the potting soil, the roots look white and look pretty vigorous, then that's okay. I mean, you kind of expect some of that root-bound nature this time of year because they've been sitting there so long, and you can always tease those out when you're planting them. And with trees, if you get the bald and burlap trees, you want to rock it back and forth, rock the trunk back and forth. It should move as one unit with the ball and burlap and the trunk of the tree. If it's moving separately, that means the roots have not gotten established into the ball and probably not going to be as easy to survive the winter. The other thing with trees and shrubs is kind of new information that's come out in the last bunch of years is that when we're planting them, it's recommended now that you wash off all the potting soil from those plants. And the reason you want to do that is to take a look at the root system. 
what's been happening is that you get root systems that start winding around and then you plant the tree or shrub. And unbeknownst to you, as the years go by, those roots get bigger and bigger and eventually they strangle the crown of the tree. So you might have a tree that looks beautiful for five, six, seven years and then all of a sudden dies. When you dig it up, you can see that root strangulation has happened. So when you plant it, by washing off the potting soil, you can tease the roots out, prune some roots if you have to, get them flaring away from the trunk of the tree, and then plant it, keep it well watered, and it'll do fine. Those are good tips. Uh, I was thinking to the dogwood dogwood that I planted in the spring, and I've seen some well-established ones uh, in my town. And this time of year, they kind of have this mildewy, uh, powdery look on their leaves. Is that going to harm them? Uh, not really. Powdery mildew is a ubiquitous disease that you see on lilacs, you see on, uh, you mentioned the dogwoods, a lot of different plants will get them, bee bombs, flocks, all kinds of plants will get it, especially this time of year. Um, it's just, if you can clean up the leaf litter as much as possible from underneath that tree, that'll help a little bit, but it really is more dependent on the weather. When you start getting those cool nights and then warm days, um, that's when the powdery mildew starts taking over. And if we're getting it this time of year, it's really not going to harm the tree. This is where we live. Uh, today we're focusing on garden with Charlie Nardozzi. Gardens, rather, with Charlie Nardozzi. Uh, he is the host of the Connecticut Garden Journal here on WNPR, a horticulturist and re- repeat guest, uh, uh, fairly popular with our listeners who appreciate uh, gardening uh, throughout Connecticut and New England. Um, if you have a question for Charlie, 860-275-7266. I mentioned dogwoods, and Mary from Greenwich is asking about uh, dogwoods. Mary, go ahead with your question. Uh, yes, we when we moved to our house here, we had five dogwoods, and the blight uh, took all five of them. And I'm wondering, we, we would like to replace, we have a place now, we'd like to place a tree. And is there a dogwood sort that you recommended that is not affected by the blight? Yeah, I believe there are some more blight-resistant varieties. I can't think of them off the top of my head. Um, But, you know, the University of Connecticut has a a plant hotline number that you can call, and uh, you can probably check with them or check with local nurseries in your area to to find those. Um, The other option, of course, if you can't find a a blight-resistant dogwood, is to look for a substitute uh, tree in there that would have a similar kind of look to it. You know, red buds are really nice for that, and, of course, the the crab apples you see all over the place. Um, Those are nice ones, too. So you can look for some trees have a similar look. There's also the Coosa dogwood, which I believe is more blight resistant than the regular Florida dogwood, the the Cornus Florida. Uh, So you can look at that one as well as another alternative if you're looking for something that looks similar and gives you those nice flowers. This was the first year that I planted uh, blueberry bushes, Charlie, and I'm noticing they're a hybrid version. And this time of year, they're the, the leaves are this beautiful cranberry. And I'm wondering, uh, with the first winter coming, is there anything that I should be doing that we should be doing with these berry bushes? No, blueberries are a great edible landscape shrub. I, I talk a lot about that. In fact, I did a talk uh, this spring down in uh, Torrington all about foodscaping or edible landscaping, and I highlighted blueberries because, uh, you know, we can't grow the burning bushes anymore because they are outlawed being an, an invasive. So if you're looking for something that gives you that brilliant fall uh, scarlet color that we love with the burning bushes, grow blueberries. It's, they're just gorgeous in the landscape. Once they're done doing their color show, they'll just drop their leaves and you pretty much are done for the season with blueberries. One thing, though, you may want to do with your blueberries is give them a little shot of sulfur. 
You know, blueberries like a very acidic soil, a pH below 5. So if you can get them some sulfur uh, in the fall, again, like I was mentioning earlier in the show, it'll break down slowly, so change that pH over time so that next spring when the blueberry starts growing, it'll have the correct pH and be able to grow strong and produce a lot of fruit. Now, we'd mentioned uh, planting trees this time of year. I've also seen people where they'll stake uh, newer trees. Is that helpful for, for young trees? Well, generally, we don't need to stake a, a lot of trees unless it's a really wispy kind of tree that's kind of, uh, this has very weak wood to it. You know, I, I think of things like willows, for example. If you put just a, a, a small little willow tree into the ground and it's got a very wispy kind of branching to it and, and trunk, it might be nice to uh, be supported that first year, especially if you have a windy spot. You're by the shoreline or you're in a spot that just has a lot of wind blowing. Uh, but generally, you want your tree to rock back and forth a little bit because what that does is it helps get the roots more established in the ground. If you keep that trunk really stable and strong and not moving any inch one way or the other, it, it's been shown that the actual the roots don't grow as fast. Uh, so having a little bit of a sway is okay. And for most trees, they're strong enough to take that, except, as I mentioned, uh, the trees that might be a little weaker wooded. Now, something that we always have our listeners ask about are hydrangeas. We have a couple of calls now. I'm going to let them ask you their question. Joanna from West Hartford, go ahead. Hello. Yes, go ahead with your question. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, yes, it's about hydrangeas and pruning. They are very lush in leaf, but this year I got not a single bloom. Um, and um, I think I must have pruned them wrongly last year. Well, what, what kind of hydrangea do you have? Um, <laughs> gosh, they're blue. I don't know. Forgive me. I don't know. I've had beautiful blooms on them for years, but uh, not this year. And I, I think perhaps I pruned at the wrong time. So that's what I was asking about. And also what to do with roses, small roses that I planted this year and have not stopped blooming all summer. Well, I think you can enjoy the roses, that's for sure. <laughs> but we'll come back to those. Let's let's deal with the, the blue hydrangea. So, yes, uh, there are a couple different kinds of blue hydrangeas on the market. The uh -huh. traditional one, like the Nico Blue, it blooms on what we call the old wood. That would be uh, the branches that are there now. They survive the winter until next year. And then off of those branches, old branches, you get branches, new branches that come out and form flowers on them. So those are the ones that you, if you're going to prune those, you don't don't want to prune them this time of year or in the spring because when you cut off that old wood, you're cutting off the flower buds. Uh, the time to prune them would be after they done the, they've done their first flush of flowers uh, so you can shape them and prune them to the size that you want. There is a, a newer type of a blue hydrangea. It's been out actually for a number of years, 20 or so years on the market. Those are the endless summer blue hydrangeas, uh, the forever and ever series. There's a number of different series. And they bloom on not only that old wood, like the Nico blue ones, but also on any branches that come out of the crown or the base of the, the tree or the shrub. Uh, so you get flowers in the summer, and then you get later flowers, usually late summer, early fall. Those, again, though, the best time to prune them will be after that first flush. So if you're going to prune, wait till next year to do it. If you're in a colder, I think, I forgot where you were calling from. I don't know if you're in a colder spot in uh, West Hartford. She's calling from oh, West Hartford. Hartford. Yeah, it's not that bad there. Um, so you can protect them, though. 
Uh, if you can protect the base of the plant with some bark mulch, maybe in early December, just put some bark mulch around the base of the plant. That may protect that old wood and make sure that it comes through the winter, especially if we have a cold, uh, snowless winter, then you're not getting that insulating effect of the snow. Uh, so putting a little bark mulch in early December might help. There's a beautiful, uh, the beautiful hydrangeas in the town that I live that have the the rusty uh, pink and red uh, this time of year. They almost look, they're very large, like a, a small tree. Are those the the hydrangeas that you want to be pruning now or in the spring? Those will be the ones you prune in the spring. Those are the panicle hydrangeas, and there's a lot of new varieties coming out with them. They're being uh, very popular. There's Quick Fire, there's Bobo, there's Pinky Winky. I always love that name. Uh, there's a number of different varieties out there uh, that are blooming, but those all blew on, bloom on what we call the new wood. So in the spring, in March, April, any time in there, uh, you can go back, prune it to the size you want, taking care of errant branches, and then all that new growth that will come out from the remaining branches will end up flowering for you in late summer. We've got one more call on hydrangeas, and then we'll move on. Uh, Don is calling. Don, go ahead with your question. Yes, I own Forever and Ever Endless Summer and Nico Blue hydrangeas for about 10 years. I have never fertilized, and the Forever and Ever hydrangeas have never flowered. All other hydrangeas have flowered. What am I doing wrong? Huh, that's a good question because uh, with the, if you get the endless summer to bloom, they're very similar in that sense that they have the old and the new wood. And you're not fertilizing, so you're not, there's not too much nitrogen in the soil. The only other thing I could think of is maybe digging it up and moving it somewhere, maybe putting it in a different spot if it's not too big, uh, to move it to a different location, see if that will help a little bit more. Um, but I would say I'd give it one more year. And after one more year, it's not blooming, it's gone. You go. There's a lot more beautiful options. Actually, there's a new uh, ever-blooming blue hydrangea called Bloomstruck that's supposed to be very hardy and very uh, reliably bloomer that's out there. So I would try some of the newer ones if that forever and ever just doesn't come along. We heard from a listener whose uh, roses continue to bloom. I've noticed some of my rose bushes, Charlie, uh, the leaves are getting stripped by some insect. Uh, what, what could that be and what should I be doing with those rose bushes? Yeah, this time of year, the insects are making a rebound. Yay! <laughs> Just what you wanted to hear. Uh, rose slugs, sawflies, things of that nature will start eating. And if you look on the bottom sides of your rose leaves, you might find some of them there. Uh, this time, I, since it's so late in the season, I wouldn't worry too much about them unless you're just it's driving you crazy. I'd hate to do any kind of spraying this late in the season. It's really not necessary for them. But you do want to keep an eye on it for next year because if they're there now, they're going to probably be coming back next spring. And the time to watch them is early, like in May or so, when the leaves are coming out or, or have just come out. And just look for little holes and then look on the undersides. That's where you're going to find a lot of these little caterpillar-like insects. And that's when you can that that's the time of year you can spray them with an organic product like spinosad uh, that will kill them pretty quickly. And uh, you do it before the blooms come out because spinosad can be toxic to honeybees um, if, it's, uh, if it's wet on the leaves. You know, once it dries, it's pretty safe. Uh, so spraying on the undersides of leaves in the spring would be the time to do that. We're getting a tweet from a listener, Charlie. Again, this is where we live, and we're talking about gardening with Charlie Nardozzi, host of the Connecticut Garden Journal, Thursday afternoons on WMPR. Uh, Jeff wants to know, they just put up a split rail fence in the front yard, and they're thinking roses. Uh, what kind of roses should he be looking into, Charlie? 
Well, there's a lot of great landscape roses out now. It started way back when with the, the Mediland series from France and the Bonica rose, for example, one that I still grow. Nice double pink rose, blooms all summer long. It, and it, they call them landscape roses because they grow like shrubs. They look like a beautiful shrub even when they're not in bloom. So anything in that series. So there's the, the Bonica is one of those. Um, there's the Knockout series. Some people really love those. I've heard mixed reviews on those from different people. Uh, the Oh So Easy is a new series that's out there. Uh, so there's a number of different ones out there. The Carpet Roses is another one that gets up kind of big and, and grows pretty well uh, that you can try. So I'd go to a garden center, look for some of those sales that are happening now, and look for some of those landscape or shrub roses. They're uh, disease-resistant, pretty hardy shrubs, and they bloom pretty much all season. The only downside is they don't have the fragrance that you would have like in an heirloom rose. We're going to head to break soon. Before we do, Charlie, composting uh, with excess leaves and plant waste, uh, what's the best way to start up a compost? Post pile in your uh, in your yard. Well, if you do have excess leaves, so we mentioned earlier in the show about leaving the leaves and, and mulching them with a mower and leaving them right on the grass, and that's the best thing. But if, if you have a lot of big old trees and you've got a, a foot of leaves on the lawn, you're going to have to remove some of those, or it's going to suffocate the grass. And so when you do take that off, you can either pile the leaves in a corner somewhere where you're not going to look at them, maybe with a wire cage around them, and just leave them there for a couple of years. They will eventually rot down to what we call leaf mold which is a compost you can use, or you can put them in your compost bin as you're pulling out the green material from your gardens and cutting back perennials and and pulling out annuals and vegetables. You can mix those in uh, with all those green materials because the leaves are heavy in carbon. So you get the carbon and the nitrogen mix, which is perfect, uh, to create a nice compost pile. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Our guest today, Charlie Nardozzi, a horticulturist and author. We'll take more of your calls after the break, and we're going to hear more from Charlie about overwintering. And don't forget, it's gourd season. Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up Monday, this year marks the 100th anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. We'll consider the significance of the historic milestone and hear from members of Connecticut's Russian-American community. That's Monday. Now, today, where we live, we get some gardening tips from our one of our favorite guests. That's Charlie Nardozzi. He joins us from the studios of Vermont Public Radio in Colchester. He's a horticulturist and host of the Connecticut Garden Journal on WMPR. Uh, we're getting a few more calls, Charlie, before we take a couple more. Let's talk about uh, as we get ready for winter, there's a, a term overwintering, and what does that mean? Well, overwintering is taking plants that you really love and you don't want to give up on and somehow uh, either bring them in the house or protect them out in the garden. So that's what we call overwintering or getting them to survive the winter. If you have some tender plants in the the garden, you mentioned lavender, which can sometimes be tender in our area, you might want to do that mulching technique that I mentioned earlier, where in early December, once everything is cooled, everything's kind of died back, everything's gone into dormancy, get some bark mulch and just kind of bury it and just kind of bury right over the top of it. You can do this with your tender hybrid tea and floribunda roses as well. And with those, you don't have to bury the whole plant, just the crown, maybe about a foot or so deep. And that will protect it just enough so that those stems in the bark mulch will overwinter. But if you do it in December, you won't have the mice and voles running around eating them because they would love to have a home of bark mulch with a food supply right there. Uh, So wait till they all find their own winter quarters and put them in there. The other option, of course, is to bring some plants in, like rosemary, for example. You can bring in, put it in a sunny window, keep it 
barely moist, not too wet, nice air circulation around it. And you can actually get it to overwinter so you can bring it back out next year. This is also a really good time to plan uh, future garden beds uh, for the spring. Can you talk us through uh, something you've talked about, uh, lasagna uh, gardening, I believe, or, and then also mound beds, uh, that you've, a technique that you've learned uh, from Germany? Yeah, so uh, with a name like an Ardozzi from Waterbury, you know, you got to know about a lasagna, right? <laughs> uh, so uh, lasagna gardening is just like making a lasagna. You create layers over the area where you want to create your new bed, whether it be a flower bed or a vegetable bed. And the time to do it is now. This is the perfect time to do it. So the first thing you want to do is take a mower, mow down the grass around there really low, scalp it down really low, maybe even any weeds or anything that's there. Just mow it all down. Then you want to get some black and white newspaper. And you can get the newspapers that have, you know, some color in them, but you don't want to get any of the glossy newspapers. And put down four uh, layers of that thick and water each layer as you're doing it so it doesn't blow away. And you create a nice mat over that whole area. Then you'll bring in some straw or maybe some of those chopped leaves that you have extra from your trees and make about a six to eight inch thick layer of that on top of the newspaper. Water that in and then get a couple inch thick layer of compost and put that on top of the whole thing. So you're making your layers, you know, just like lasagna and you leave it. That's the perfect, that's the beauty of this. It's just like a good lasagna. You leave it after you cook it, then the flavors really blend. Well, what happens with this is that by next spring, you've killed the lawn grass, but you saved all that great organic matter that's there. Everything is starting to break down, the newspaper, the hay, the straw, the chopped leaves. And you can literally plant in next May right into the top compost layer without having to turn anything, till anything, do anything else other than dig a hole and plant it. And it'll be beautiful. Also, uh, in Germany, that technique about mounding beds. Can you tell us briefly, Charlie? I'm not going to ask you how to say no, it. No, I won't. I won't say it. Hugel <laughs> <laughs> culture. Hugel culture means mound bed. And this is a technique they use in Eastern Europe and in Germany. And I played around a little bit with it. And what it is, is if you have extra logs, extra branches, or extra woody material around, you create a mound with that. So maybe you dig out a little bit of soil in an area. You throw all the, the branches, the thick branches and the, the logs in there. Or you can do it right on top of the soil. Then you bury it with more extra soil on top of that. So you can create a mound with all these branches and woody material with a covering of topsoil or regular soil. Then next year, you plant right into it. And what they have found is that they, the first year, you can plant things like potatoes, you can plant trees, you can plant shrubs, you can plant a whole bunch of different things. And slowly, as time goes by, nutrients are released as those woody materials start decomposing. And so over time, these trees and shrubs have all this great material that they're going to be using to grow really well. And it's a nice way to use this woody material that you normally might just throw off the bank somewhere or just kind of burn or something. Uh, this way, you're using it to actually feed your plants. So it's called hugel culture. You can Google it and find out more about it. Uh, fun thing to do if you have a lot of woody material. You can also go to WMPR.org and search for Connecticut Garden Journal. You'll see all of Charlie's uh, posts uh, from his show, which is very helpful. Uh, before we take one more call, I want to ask you about it's gourd season. So how should we be curing these gourds? So if you have the hard-shelled gourds, you know, there's two different kinds of gourds. The, the small gourds, the little warty ones that you see in garden centers and farm stands, are used mostly for decoration. And they're nice until they get a little frost on them, and they'll just kind of rot. But the hard-shelled gourds are ones that actually have a hard skin to them. And so you want to harvest them before a frost, and then you want to cure them in a nice warm place. And a hard-shelled gourds can be used for so many different things. And the names of the gourds reflect what they could be used for. So there's a dipper gourd, there's a spoon gourd, there's a bottle gourd, there's 
there's a bushel gourd. Uh, there's musical gourds. There's gourds that you can turn into little drums and things of that nature. Uh, there's birdhouse gourds. So you just will put these in a warm place, 70, 80 degree barn, shed, a garage area. Let them dry. You want to let them dry until you can hear the seeds rattle around inside. Then you can cut a little hole in them, clean out the seeds, and then you can start carving them and make all kinds of different decorations or make some of these useful things out of them. They're a lot of fun. They'll last for years, especially if you shellac them and preserve them. Now, Martha's calling from Willington. Martha, we've just got about a minute. Go ahead with your question. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Should you rake pine needles off a lawn? Well, pine needles obviously are, are acidic, and you don't want your lawn to get too acidic. So if you have a thick layer of pine needles on that lawn, yes, I would say rake it off and put them around hydrangeas, put them around blueberries, put them around shrubs that like the acidic nature, and that's going to help. The other thing you can do is spread a little lime on that lawn this fall to make sure you keep that pH 6.5 to 7, which is going to be slightly acidic but more neutral than what the uh, pine needles would be. Now, we talked about gourds. Uh, this is also a uh, pumpkin season uh, with jack-o'-lanterns. What are some uh, good ways to keep those preserved before uh, Halloween comes? Ah, pumpkin tips. Yes. So uh, if you're, you're picking out your jack-o'-lantern, here's a couple little tips you might want to do. With all this warm weather, if you carve your jack-o'-lantern now, by Halloween, it's going to look like a scrunched little mummy face <laughs> because it's just going to decompose really fast. So what you want to do is either wait till right before Halloween to do the carving, or if you do carve it, make sure you, you follow these couple tips. One is that instead of cutting off the top where the stem is to clean out all the guts, all the, the seeds and everything, make a hole in the back instead and clean it out that way because the top actually helps with the structure of that pumpkin. When you cut it off, it really kind of ruins any kind of support it might have. Whereas if you cut it through this, the back, you'll be able to preserve it a little bit longer. The other thing is that once you've cut it, get some petroleum jelly and just uh, rub it all over the, the cut areas. So that will help reduce the amount of dehydration that'll happen again so it won't shrivel up so much. And then the third thing you can do is create a jack-o'-plantern. That means you fill it up with potting soil, and then you put little plants in instead of putting a candle in there. So maybe some sedums for the eyes, a little ornamental grass for the head. You can put a bunch of different plants in. It becomes a planter, and it's a jack-o'-planter. So you could do it that way, too. I love your pumpkin tips, Charlie. Uh, we're almost out of time. Anything that we missed that you want to bring up uh, as, again, we, we uh, look forward to fall or uh, winter? Yeah, I think uh, don't get fooled by the weather too much because, as I was mentioning, it can change really quickly. So spend some time out there. Get out there. Do some of those chores, the weeding, the planting, uh, the sprucing up of things. Don't do much pruning, though, this time of year. And uh, before you know it, it'll be spring. Well, I want to thank Charlie Narduzzi. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. We learn so much. Uh, Charlie Narduzzi, again, a horticulturist, author, host of Connecticut Garden Journal, joined us today from the studios of Vermont Public Radio in Colchester. Charlie, I hope we can talk to you again in the spring. I'd love to. Take care, Lucy. Our show today produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Our executive producer is Katie Tolarski. You can learn more about where we live at WMPR.org. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We hope you have a great weekend.